Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. The first thing I want to tell you is that there will be no live Bible study next week, November 25th, because in the U.S. here we have Thanksgiving the next day. Uh, so we'll sadly take that day off. But send in your love. Hope you can find some of our 245 episodes that are up online uh, to watch. Uh, maybe have a marathon all through Thanksgiving or, or whatever. Uh, so tonight our topic is to do all things well. And this is the last in our series of the purposes of Jesus coming into this world. Where in Scripture does it say anything about to do all things well? And uh, what do we learn about Jesus and about ourselves from this topic? So I'd like to invite you to join us for that. And let's open with a prayer, shall we, friends? Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you are the one God of heaven and earth. You bowed the heavens and came down into this world. You were resurrected as the Word, glorified forever. We thank you, Lord, for being present among us. Please open up the pages of your Word to us and show us who you are. Amen. Thanks, everyone, for coming, sending love to those of you out there online and getting the audio and on the phone and so on. Uh, it's always great to be with you. I'm really going to miss it next week. Let's start by going straight to Mark chapter 7, where these words occur. It's funny, you know, I've been through the Bible a couple of times, but I don't remember reading these words before. Uh, so let's go to the end of Mark chapter 7. Why don't we start at verse 31 there and read about this uh, miracle that he does. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Yes, this was Jesus, yep. <laughs> then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Mm. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. Nice Hebrew pronunciation, dear reader. <laughs> Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Wow, so that's interesting, isn't it? That here in this particular healing, he put his fingers in his ears, he spit and touched his tongue, but that didn't do it. Then he... What did he do? He sighed, right? Looking up to heaven. And he looked up to heaven, he sighed, and he said, be opened. And that's when it opened up, when he said something. Is, is, it had set the stage, but when he said something is when it opened up. Okay, and look at verse 36 there. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. This is a theme especially strongly in the Gospel of Mark. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. <laughs> it's a very successful marketing strategy to tell everyone not to say anything to anybody. Mm -hmm. And they would all go out and tell about what happened. And how did people react? And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. There it is. That's our text for tonight. They were astonished beyond measure, and they said, He's done all things well. Go on. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Yes, He's done all things well. <coughs> so that's where we get our text from. And to my mind, that was linked to a couple of other scriptures. If you go to the right out into the, uh, beyond the Gospels into the epistles and get to the Hebrews, which is sort of a way station halfway through the epistles there, uh, Hebrews chapter 4 tells us an important thing. It's comparing Jesus to the high priest of Old Testament times. You know, there was one high priest who was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And it's comparing Jesus to that high priest. And then in verse 15 of chapter 4, we read this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Oh, sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses. <coughs> but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Aha. Uh -huh. He was tempted the same way we're tempted, 
but he had no sin in him the way we all have sin in us. So he was, it's a very interesting nuance that's trying to get across, that he went through temptations, but it was not because of his own sin. In our case, it's our own sin that, that causes that, but in his case, no, he had no sin. And similarly, if you turn to the right, almost all the way to the book of Revelation, go to that first epistle of John there, and we want chapter 3. And we want verse 5. This is again about Jesus. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. In him there is no sin. Now, there's a lot of people in our world, I think. Uh, some consider themselves Christians, some don't, but they still have an opinion about Jesus. There's a lot of people who feel that Jesus was a very nice guy. Maybe he was some sort of a master or he was an enlightened being like the Buddha or, or other people and so on. This is not the way he's presented in Scripture. In Scripture, he is different from everyone else on the planet. He was without sin. That, that makes him different. And he did all things well. One of the things I'm hoping to talk about tonight is that we as finite human beings... I think all of us have some things that we do well, but we all have things that we do poorly. That we, you know, we, it's not true of us that we do all things well. You can't say that of us. That's something you can say about Jesus, but you can't say of us. That's at least part of where I'm coming from tonight. Uh, I want to dip right now into some difficult stories here. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew to your left, to <clears throat> chapter 26 toward the end, uh, because it was striking me how much it's emphasized in all four Gospels, and we don't necessarily have to read all these passages, but it's emphasized again and again that Jesus did no wrong. This is a major part of the crucifixion story. He did not deserve what happened to him. He did no wrong. Look at chapter 26, verses 59 and 60. Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Yes. But found none. They couldn't even find a false witness. <laughs> you know, <laughs> The guy was so good. You know, there was nothing you could really say against him. And at last, they, they got these two false witnesses who just said this thing about how he's going to build the temple in three days. And so they said, okay, that's it. Now we've got enough, you know, on him and everything. Or they get him to say something about how he's the son of man or something. And they go after him. Look at chapter 27, verse 4. Look at, this is G, Judas, and he comes back and throws the 30 pieces of silver. Uh, I mean, he takes the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and elders. This was the, the blood price, you know, on Jesus' head. And Judas was regretting it. And what does he say in verse 4? He was one of Jesus' followers. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Yes. Judas says he was innocent. Judas, that's an interesting testimony. Judas says, he, I have sinned because I betrayed innocent blood. He did nothing wrong. Uh, that's on me kind of thing. Uh, 27 verse 19, what do we have there? 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him. Who's that? Pilate's this is Pilate's wife, wife yes. Okay. Uh, saying, have nothing to do with that just man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. She calls him a just man. Now she's a, a Roman of the highest class. And here's this Jesus who's been brought in as a criminal. And yet she's calling him a just man. And uh, when Pilate takes him out before the people in verse 23, they're all saying, let Jesus be crucified. Then the governor said, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, let him be crucified. Great question. What evil, what evil has he done? Answer, none. He never did any evil ever. Look at verse 24. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, 
but rather that a tumult was rising. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. Yeah, Pilate declares him just. And so those are some scriptures in Matthew. There's scriptures in Mark, in Luke, in John, all at the end where they're describing the crucifixion. And uh, they all say that he was just, he was righteous. Oh, let's see, where would that be? Uh, let's go to John just to read uh, there. I think I can find it. At the end of John, John, let's try 19. <coughs> no, I might not be able to find it that quickly, but uh, you remember anyway the story that the centurion, remember he was so amazed, you know, when Jesus gave up the ghost like that, and then I forget his exact words, but it was again the feeling that Jesus, this was a, this was a righteous person, you know. That's what he concludes about Jesus at the crucifixion. So that's, that's emphasized many times. So he was without sin. He had no sin. He did all things well. Something I want to talk about tonight is uh, the topic of perfectionism. Let's see. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. Okay, so go back. We're jumping around tonight. You see, doing all things well, isn't that what, wouldn't that be, like if you were trying to do everything well, wouldn't that be a kind of perfectionism? You're, you're trying to do everything well. And look at chapter 5, verse 48, where Jesus says this in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And he's not necessarily making a statement of fact about the future. It's in the old King James, it's be ye therefore perfect. You know, it's a, it's a command that you should be perfect. So you can understand where a lot of Christians uh, think, well, I'm supposed to be perfect uh, because I've been told to be perfect. Uh, can you come with me, friends? Go to the right, out of the Gospels again. I want to go into the epistles here. Through Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, I want to get to Philippians. Before. It's after Galatians, Ephesians, and you get to Philippians. Before Hebrews. And it's before the Hebrews, that's right. And things that start with a T, Thessalonians and Timothy and all that. What's that? Philippians chapter 3. Paul, this is an interesting passage. You see, Paul... The Apostle Paul went through a very interesting life because he was a Pharisee and he was very, very scrupulous in his observance. You see why I would bring this up tonight? I mean, Paul felt like you could say of him, he did all things well. You know, he, he was very careful about all. There were 613 rules of the Mosaic law, and Paul followed those all to the letter. It, he, he was a, a scrupulous, very careful person in his religious observance. And he talks about this. Look in chapter 3. Let's start at... Um, he says something at the end of verse 3 about having no confidence in the flesh. And then what does he say in verse 4? Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. And what he means by confidence in the flesh there, I believe, is that he could feel confident in who he was as a person, you know, confidence in himself, confidence in the flesh. Go on. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. I more so, yes, you know, a little bit competitive, but, uh, you know, <laughs> that if anybody did a good job, it was me. I, I aced that. I, I was the best, you know. Go on. And he describes it a little bit. Circumcised the eighth day. Very important. Can't leave that out. Of the stock of Israel. That's right. So he's an Israelite. That's a good thing to be. Of not, the, not some Gentile or something. He's of the stock of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. That's good. That's good. The tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of the Hebrews. Yes. He out-Hebrewed the other Hebrews. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. You know? And? 
Concerning the law, a Pharisee. A Pharisee who were very scrupulous in their observance, their knowledge of the law, and they're following the law. Perfectionists, you know, people who are trying to do it right. Go on. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Yes, so he felt that this was part of his righteousness was that he was persecuting Christianity because that was a heresy. It was the enemy of the church that he was a part of that you have this new movement growing up that's, that's not of us, you know. And so he was zealous, you know, he was strong. Like you should persecute that because it's something different. And so this is part of his, his bragging list mm. is that he was persecuting the church and... Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Look at that, blameless. Now that was hard. With 613 commandments, difficult to achieve blamelessness. There were a lot of things you could be blamed for in that law, and he was blameless. So this is his list of, I, I was at the top of the game, you know? I was the best at that whole Old Testament law thing. I'm putting words in his mouth. And uh, now in verse 7, what does he say? But what things were gain to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Uh-huh. Well, that's weird. You see, what happened to him was after this careful, careful life of following all the rules and doing everything absolutely right, then you know the story. He's walking on the road to Damascus. This great light comes out of the sky. says, why are you persecuting me? And he is not right with God. How could that be? He did everything right. How could he be out of alignment with God? Well, there was just a little touch of murderousness in his spirit. You know, not a major problem, but he held Stephen's cloak while he was martyred and everything, and he admits that himself. You know, he was pers he got, I think, a little bit of enjoyment out of persecuting the Christians. And uh, so he was right on the outside but not right on the inside. The Lord actually said that he was not, he was actually persecuting the Lord when he thought he was doing the Lord a favor. He's doing everything right. So let's read on from there. I think we might as well just go ahead. Yet Verse indeed, eight. I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Mm. And count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Yes, the wonderful, rich language of the old King James. I do count them but dung. <laughs> yes. Uh, they, what are all these things that he's lost? Well, his self-opinion. No, I thought I was acing. The, I was at the top of the game. I was outdoing everybody at this. But turns out I wasn't doing it right. And that was a loss. But what he won was Christ. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. Oh, wait, what did you just say there, Paul? Not having my own righteousness. Oh, how interesting. Would that be related, dear reader, to that say self-righteousness, would you say? <laughs> not having my own righteousness, which is what? Which is from the law. Oh, I see. So he was feeling righteous because he was following the law. But now he's lost that sense because he was acing that. But the Lord, he wasn't right with the Lord. So what else? So not having my own righteousness, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Yes, it's about faith in God and the righteousness that comes as you live by faith. Go on that I may know him and the power of his resurrection hmm. and the fellowship of his sufferings. What an interesting phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings. Being conformed to his death. To his death. Yeah, Jesus went through that amazing death. And so Paul, and Paul hadn't been through that death until Jesus came into his life. And then he went through some of that suffering himself. Uh, Verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Yes, that's what he wants to achieve. In other words, what we would call going to heaven. He, he was not in a heavenly state, even though he'd been following everything he thought was right. So what does he say here? Now listen to this. This is the statement of an ex-perfectionist. 
right? Not <laughs> what does he say? <coughs> Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Oh, look at that. He thought he was already perfected, but now he realizes he's not. I want to get to heaven. He says, I want to attain that, the resurrection of the dead. And, but I don't mistake me. I'm not saying, hey, I have arrived. I've already got it. Mm. I'm not saying I've already been perfected. I'm perfect. But what does he say? What, what, what would the alternative be? But I press on uh -huh. that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Wow, that's powerful. I want to lay hold of that. So that reciprocal relationship with the Lord. The Lord's laying hold of him. He's laying hold of the Lord. Go on. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Wow, what would he be forgetting that was behind? Oh, all that perfect, that self-righteousness, that amazing sense you can have of, of being better than others and that you're following the thing and you're doing it right and then you're kind of adamant about other people. You don't have that humility and all that. He's forgetting all that stuff that was behind. And what's he doing? And reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Uh-huh. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Yes. Let's read one more. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. So this is a guy who thought he was in perfection, who now realizes he's in a process. Is it not? Where he was before, it's like, I'm acing this game, Hebrew of the Hebrews. Now he's saying, I press forward. I'm not saying I'm already there. Paul's not saying he's already there. He's been baptized, but he's not saying he's already there. You know, he, he's, a, he's a leader of the church, but he's not saying, I, I'm, not a, I, I'm not saying I'm already there, but I'm on a process and I'm going somewhere. I don't count myself to have apprehended, but I'm forgetting the things that are behind. I'm pressing forward because I want to get there toward the goal. He's in a process now that's so different than that perfectionism where he was before. That's very, very intriguing to me. Um, let's look at some other scriptures. Oh, let's go to the left to the Gospel of Luke, shall we? Luke chapter 18, I'm thinking about. This is another Pharisee story. Uh, look at verse 9. Let's start at 18, verse 9 in Luke. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Oh, would you say that was like they were self-righteous? Trusted in themselves. They trusted they in themselves that, that they, they were righteous. And despised others. May I interrupt you again? No, go ahead. Please do. All right. You're done. I'm done. Okay. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Okay, two people went up to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, we know how the story's going to turn out. The Pharisee is a really excellent person, and the tax collectors were horrible. I mean, they were the worst. They were the dregs of the society. Okay, go on. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Maybe you're familiar with this wonderful prayer. So just a model prayer. Go on. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Yes, I am so grateful that I'm not like other people extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Yes. I, you know, it's grateful to the Lord. He's grateful. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm grateful that, how does he know? He knows he's not like other people. I am grateful that I'm not like these other losers. And then he lists several categories of losers, including the tax collector who's standing right beside him here. And then he gives a little evidence just to back up his claim. I fast twice a week. Twice a week. More even than you have to. I give tithes of all that I possess. That is so good. Very the, good person. And the tax collector, standing afar off, oh. would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, mm. but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Hmm. And what does Jesus say about this? I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Mm, classic New Testament teaching. So uh, we are told that this first model of praying uh, where you're coming from a place of superiority and self-righteousness and looking down on others, doesn't it say he was not justified? You know, the person who was justified, the person for whom the prayer really worked, was the humble one who wouldn't even get close, wouldn't even lift up his eyes. You know? I mean, he was right. He was a sinner. But he acknowledged it. And he's pounding on his chest. And just says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord says, I like that prayer. That's a humble prayer. I like that. This arrogant, I'm just fine, everybody else is worse than me, is not as excellent a state. It's not as perfect a state of prayer as being humble about yourself. I like that story. And let's turn to the left and go through Mark to Matthew. I want to get to Matthew chapter 23. Just so much fun, isn't it? So Matthew 23 is this amazing harangue. It's just so wonderful. The whole chapter is just this harangue where Jesus is standing in the temple and he's haranguing the scribes and the Pharisees and calling them hypocrites and fools and so on. And here's a particular part of it. Let's start at verse 23 there. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. Wait, that's what the other guy was proud of, right? Paying that tithe tithes. thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, a lot of people don't, but I do. I'm doing it right, you know. I'm doing the right thing. You pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. Justice, mercy, and faith. See, that's the problem. That's, that's what Paul had a little problem with, was that he didn't have the justice, mercy, and faith. He had the other thing. He was doing the tithing thing well, but not the, not the weightier matters of the law. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Yeah, so the Lord supports that idea of the mint, and, you know, tithing of the mint and all, all that stuff. You know, sure, do all those observances, but have a sense of proportion. What's important is that mercy and justice and faith, and if you're doing those and you're tithing, you're in good shape. But if all you're doing is the tithing and you despise other people, it's not as perfect as you might think it is. Look as he goes on from there. <coughs> Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Isn't that trying to say the, basically the same thing that, that you know... <laughs> You, you, so you catch this tiny little thing, right? <laughs> you strain out a gnat, but you'd swallow a can. You know, like what you're missing is huge. You, uh, you, you're not even aware of your horrendous blunders, and you think you're doing such a perfect job. Go on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Aha. Uh -huh. Paul, it just is reminiscent of Paul's sort of first phase, isn't it? That, that, that everything was right on the outside, but inside he had this murderous heart and vengeance and all that kind of thing. Go on. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish. Yes, this is a major point of the New Testament. Repentance, you know. Clean the inside first. That the outside of them may be clean also. Yes, Swedenborg says many times that what you have on the inside is what determines what's on the outside. So you may have people who are extremely worshipful and observant and they go through all the things. But what if, if what's in their heart is just evil and nastiness, uh, their, their external observance is not actually helping them be in a holier state. It's just sort of a show. Go on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. It's subtle, but if you read between the lines, you can see that what he's saying is that they're no good on the inside. 
it's all for show on the outside. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Yes, that's right. So do you see what I'm saying? There's a kind of external self-righteous perfectionism that the Lord speaks against. But wait a minute, a little bit ago, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, how do we do that? How, what, what, what kind of perfection is that? It seems like Paul, on the second go-around, got the swing of it, which is that it's a process, right? And he was doing that repentance. You can see that in other passages. He was laying aside the evils in himself and striving striving towards something, but not thinking that it's just something that you can impose on yourself and then feel superior to everybody who's not like you, who's not doing it as well as you do. And let's talk a little bit. Uh, if you're interested in pursuing this some more, I don't usually do cross-references in this Bible study, but uh, back in episode 41 <laughs> on May the 18th of 2011, we had an episode called Being Perfect where we looked at this whole thing for, for an evening. And uh, I just want to pick out a few passages uh, about what does it mean? Because it can really haunt some people, uh, especially if you have a naturally perfectionist tendency or something. Uh, isn't there a good kind? I mean, I think there genuinely is. Isn't it great that uh, uh, for people to strive to try to better themselves, you know, those are good things, right? I mean, to try to improve and, and get better. Paul several times refers to it as being like a race. So what is this perfection of perfect? Well, that, that's a tough word. You know, that sound, I mean, he said bl blameless is what Paul said. It sounds like flawless or something. And yet when we really examine ourselves, we see that we fall short of that. What is the nature of this perfection? Let's read a few scriptures on that. Can you go to the Old Testament, friends? And after the five books of Moses in there somewhere, you get First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. And I want to go to Second Samuel, <coughs> chapter twenty-two. I like this little phrase. Just a little phrase. It's a cool one. Second Samuel twenty-two, verse thirty-three. Twenty-two, thirty-three. So this is a song, uh, David is talking. Or yeah, that's right. God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. Yes. I might even put the emphasis on the he. That, he uh, makes, he my, makes way my way perfect. perfect. The self-righteousness is when I make my way, you know, according to my own code and my own idea of what perfection is, I make my way perfect. I think I'm doing all this right. It may have some anger and rigidity inside it or something, but I think I'm acing this thing, you know, and I'm going to overlook the ways in which I fall short. But I like this. This is a humbler statement, isn't it? God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. So what does making that way perfect mean? Let's go to the middle of the Bible, and you get the Psalms and Isaiah sort of in the middle there. I want to go to Isaiah chapter 18. Hmm. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 there. Now, this is deep in that poetic sort of imagery of the prophets, and so a lot of this will not be readily intelligible. Let's have a go, though. For so the Lord said to me, I will take my rest, mm. and I will look from my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Mm. So the Lord is looking for that Sabbath or that rest, which is a state in us uh, that you might call perfection. You know, he, he wants that rest of the seventh day in us. Look at verse 5. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect, oh, and the sour grape is ripening in the flower. Ripening. So isn't perfect and ripening, aren't they parallel in there? Perfect, the bud is perfect, the sour grape is ripening, right? Go on. He will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and 
take away and cut down the branches. Okay, and we don't have time to get into all of that. But uh, it was interesting to me that this is a ripening sort of metaphor. This perfect idea is about ripening, it's about a process. Mm -hmm. In one of those other passages said mature, didn't it? Mm -hmm. And the old King James said perfect, where the new King James said mature. Uh, when the bud is perfect, so the Lord is looking for a resting place. There's a process that goes on with that plant. And uh, it's not that the bud, it doesn't mean the bud is flawless or perfectly symmetrical or has no blotches or spots or slightly wonky features or anything. You know, it just means the bud happened, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Completely. Did you do the bud stage? Yep, we did it. <laughs> That's what perfect means. Mm -hmm. Perfect means you did it. You, you went through that stage. And then when the sour grape is ripening in the flower, you know, so you got the, the bud stages done. Good. You know, doesn't have to be flawless. It's a process. Uh, perfect just means that you got to that next step. Uh, okay. Oh, let's go to... Um, Let's go into the New Testament. Why don't we go into 1 Corinthians, okay? So that's to the right of the Gospels and Acts and Romans. I want to go to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. There's way too much here for us to read, but it's great stuff. In chapter 12, there's this wonderful discussion that you may be familiar with, friends, about our gifts. Oh, let's just start. Um, oh, let's start at verse eight. Let's start at verse seven. But the man or six. No, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Whichever you want. Okay. <laughs> and there are diversities of activities, but it's. But it is the same God who works all in all. Diversities of activities. Okay, go on. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Yes, the manifestation of the Spirit. Interesting idea. Okay, go on. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. So it's the same Spirit, but it affects one person differently than another person. One person is good at this Another person's good at that. Go on. To another, faith by the same spirit. Same spirit. But what this person got was faith. To another, gifts of healing. Same spirit. By the same spirit. But what they got was the gift of healing. Everybody got something different. Right? Go on. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And? But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Yes, that's right. So it's the same Spirit that gives all these different gifts. One reason that I'm bringing this up tonight is that if you're good, that list of people we just read, one person's good at one thing, but they're not so good at the other thing. But the other one's good at another thing. And the way society is supposed to work is that you bring your strengths, I bring my strength, we all contribute together because we all get different gifts out of the same spirit. So where in there is the idea that I will be good at everything? I'm going to bury everybody with how incredibly awesome I am. You know, that's not the spirit of the community that the Lord's trying to create. The Lord was good at everything. We don't have to, we're not supposed to be good at everything. You're good at something and you give that gift. That's the way that the Spirit bounces off of you. It goes on in the chapter to talk about the body. Many different members of the body, they all do perform different functions and they're not supposed to be the same. It's a great little riff and fits very well with many things that Swedenborg says. Um, so, and he talks about, you know, we should all be working together. And then, interestingly, at the end of this thing about everybody being differentiated and having these different gifts, look at verse 31 there. 31. Pardon 
and of 1 Corinthians 12. But earnestly desire the best gifts. Okay, you can still be competitive. Like, it's okay to strive, you know, to work for the best gift and so on. You know, go, go for it. Go for the best thing you can, you can get, that you can give to the community. That striving is great. It's, it's a wonderful thing. But don't delude yourself into thinking you're going to do all things well. Paul's statement of himself in the past is amazing. I, did, I was blameless before the law. You know, it's just amazing. If you really examine yourself, you see that is not the case. And then look at what he says right after that. You know 1 Corinthians chapter 13, good friends. You've probably heard it in many weddings and uh, even TV weddings have 1 Corinthians 13 on them. And it's uh, this beautiful little essay about love. It mm -hmm. says, desire earnestly the best gifts... And then you have these beautiful 13 verses on love. Yet I show you a more excellent way. That's right. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And then he talks all about love. If you don't have love and so on and so forth. In the old King James, it says charity. New King James, it says love. And it's all about this. Now look at this. Look at verses 9 and 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. Oh, okay. And what is the perfect thing? Look at verses 12 and, and 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I, just as I also, uh, but then I shall know just as I also am known. There's that reciprocal thing again. You know, I will know, I will be known. Go on. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Now, so I would argue that, that in verse 10, when it says, when, when what is perfect has come, refers to love. Like that but is perfect. It means the process is complete. When you get to the point where you're coming from love, that's what perfect means. It doesn't mean your nose is perfectly symmetrical, you know, or your eyes match, or you have no blemish upon your person of any kind. It means <laughs> that you're coming from love. That's what perfect means. Mm -hmm. Perfect is that you got to the end of that process, and now love is where you're coming from. That's what it means. And Paul would be the first to say, I, not that I've attained, but I'm, I'm working on it, you know, that, that's what it is. That's the nature of that perfection. So that's a neat, the whole juxtaposition of the gifts there. And then, hey, if you want the best gift, if you still got that striving in you, go for love. That's the good one. You know, that's, that's the good one. That's, that's perfection when you develop that love. Turn to the right and go through 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and you'll get to Colossians. Paul's epistle to the Colossians, and I want to go to chapter 3, and, oh, let's just read verses 12 to 14 there, shall we? Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Boy, that humility is an important element of what we're talking about tonight, isn't it? Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Mm. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But what would be the chief thing, would you say, Paul? But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Oh, thank you. <laughs> there, now I feel perfect. Um, it says love is the bond of perfection. What, so when the Sermon on the Mount says, be therefore perfect as your Father in heaven and perfect, if you know the language of correspondences, the Father means the divine love. Love as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, be loving as your Father in heaven is loving. That's what that means. It doesn't mean try to pretend to yourself that you're flawless in all execution of all aspects of your life and feel superior to other human beings and despise the vermin with whom you have to share this magnificent planet. You know, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about get to that point of love. What a beautiful list. It had humility in there, didn't it? 
kindness and so on, forgiveness and all those things. And the bond of perfection is love. If you get to that point of love, Swedenborg, a lot of people don't realize this, even people who've been reading Swedenborg a long time, don't realize necessarily, I don't think, painting with a broad brush here, but uh, that Swedenborg speaks of charity and he speaks of love. And I don't think people realize that even charity is sort of a fallback plan for Swedenborg, that it's a very, very good thing and it'll get you to heaven, but charity is a little more like being kind to other people on principle. It's because the truth told you you should. So even though you don't particularly like the people, you'll do nice things for them. You know, that's, charity has something of that quality to it. The perfection, if you really want to go for the goal, try actually loving the other people instead of just doing what's right by them because it's charity and you, re you read the truth. And so that, that charity is very good. It will get you to heaven. It'll get you to the spiritual heaven. It's a good thing. But I'm just saying a lot of people think that's the highest, the be-all and the end-all. Uh, but the more I study Swedenborg, I realize, no, there's something higher than charity, which is love. That, that's what the Lord's holding out for, if possible. He'd like to get us to love. And a turn to the right. And let's go back to 1 John again, where we were before, shortly before the book of Revelation there. I want to go to 1 John chapter 2. This tells us how to do this. It has to do with following the commandments, which has to do with repentance and so on. Look at 2 verses 3 and following right there. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Yeah, this is how you know you know the Lord if you keep his commandments. Go on. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Uh-huh. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. How nice. The love of God is perfected. In. Does that happen all in an instant? I don't think so. Paul said, I haven't attained, I haven't apprehended, still working on it. But when you keep the word of the Lord then that love of God is gradually perfected in you. You can finish off that By verse this, we know that we are in Him. And look at chapter 4, very important passage in these regards. Oh, let's start at verse 12, shall we? No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. Yes, the Old King James says his love is perfected, which I kind of like better from the standpoint of a process. But either way, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is or has been perfected in us. Go on. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Oh, that's what we were reading in 1 Corinthians 12, wasn't it? Everybody gets the same spirit, but it turns into different things in different people. Go on. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Now that's not a bad state to be in either. I don't know what you find, friends. I've been through situations in my life where I didn't know or believe the love that God had for me. Like, you know, it's something that you can not be aware of in certain states. Uh, but it's nice that the disciples are saying, we have known and believed the love that God has for us. We, we believe in that love. We, we feel that. Go on. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. That reciprocal thing again. Mm -hmm. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, don't pretend to know everything that's going on in that particular verse, but you see that love and being perfected are linked there, are they not? This love has been perfected in us. Again, is it be therefore perfect? has to do with be loving, come, mm -hmm. come from love. Go on, this last wonderful verse here, 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love, yeah, perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. But he oh, I don't mind it. No, uh, fear in, that does involve torment, doesn't it? 
But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Yes, if fear is still hanging around in the way that it's talking about fear, then that love process has not been perfected yet. Doesn't mean it can't be, but it hasn't been made perfect in love. Um, mm. Okay, uh, there's another little tidbit I want to throw in here real quick. Let's go back to the Gospels, to Matthew 27. Um, there's a reason that's twice stated in the Scriptures for why they put Jesus to death. Why did they put him to death? Chapter 27 in Matthew. <coughs> this is Pilate speaking. And he wanted to know whether the people wanted Barabbas, this murderer, and this, you know, he, was the, he caused insurrection and so on, or Jesus. And we've already heard that Jesus was perfect. He was just. He did nothing wrong. And look at verse 18. Matthew 27, verse 18. It explains why the crucifixion took place. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Envy. It was envy. They killed him because they were jealous of him. Can you beat that? Man, that's a lousy reason to kill somebody, isn't it? They killed him for envy. It doesn't seem like that's taught a whole lot. I, I haven't heard that a lot in my life. But there it is. And look in Mark. Turn to the right to Mark chapter 15. It's just a parallel passage. 15 verse 10 there. Pilate again. For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Because of envy. The chief priests envied him. Look at him. Don't they say in another passage we read not long ago in Bible study, look how the whole world has gone out after him. You see how you accomplish nothing. You know, he's magnetic. He's so lovable. He's wise. He's humble. He's selfless. He's giving. He's compassionate. He's clear. He has this unbelievable wisdom. He doesn't just have this sort of deep, arcane, faraway wisdom or something. He also knows all about how it works with sheep and whether they get their legs stuck in a hole and what you do on the Sabbath. He knows how the whole vineyard thing works and the hiring. And, the, and uh, he has this, this folk wisdom. He's enormously attractive to people from all echelons of society. You know, it, some people will, will follow somebody if they're interesting or they have interesting stuff to say, but it's tough to get the... You know, like the like the the working people. You know what I mean? They loved him. The fishermen, in a heartbeat, said, "I'm dropping my nets, going with you." He had this magnetic appeal. He did everything well. He was such a beautiful, lovable person. I've gone through things at times in my life. You know, Swedenborg talks about this hierarchy of the loves, and the highest love. There's a very good love, which is love of the neighbor uh, that we should have in ourselves. But the highest love is this love of the Lord. And I've spent a lot of time in the course of my life feeling like, well, how do you love the Lord? I don't see him. His face doesn't go do this or that when I say this or that. But, you know, like, is this a relationship? You know, how, how do you love the Lord? Well, it was really striking me lately that you really do see him in the New Testament. If you read with an open heart, you see this amazing person. He will not ostracize anybody. He never gives up on anybody. That harangue we just read in Matthew 23 against the Pharisees where he's sounding very strong and yelling at them about their hypocrites and fools and blind guides and all that. At the end of that very chapter is where he says one of the most beautiful things about I wanted to gather you under my wings. You know, that's all he wanted. Love him, take him in, in, under his wings. You know, that's the purpose. That's the love behind that harangue. It was not angry. It was not vindictive. When he was being tortured, he never stopped feeling love for other people. Uh, never. When everybody was arrayed against him, didn't get it, and just were having a really fabulous afternoon killing him. It was so delightful. to You know, it was just a fabulous, really exciting afternoon of killing this good guy who we hate because we envy him. Uh, he didn't hate him back. 
He did not hate them back. He did all things well. And when you really look at that quality, he's just enormously attractive and lovable. He's so, like, when does he ever complain? He never complains. It's always about other people. He, he never sort of goes on about, oh, well, I'm having a rough day. I mean, I'd love to try to heal you, but, you know, I mean, it's just got a headache and I just come, come back tomorrow or something. You know, you never hear him saying things like that. He's always got time for people. If anybody says to him, Simon the Pharisee or anybody, a leper says to him, come over to my house for dinner. He says, what time? You know, he never says, well, I'm sorry, I can't, you know, or I don't do people like you, I, you know, you're just not my type or, and boy, does he never say, you're not as good as me or I shouldn't be eating with you because you're not really all that great, you know, and I'm better than you, you know, you never get that from him. He's so humble and he just wants to do a job, you know, he just wants to embody the divine love. He loves everybody with this tremendous heart. The reason they kill him is because he's so good, because he's just a nice, humble guy who is so effective at loving others. He's so good. He can heal. He can teach. People said of his words, you know, that story that they sent people out to arrest him, and they couldn't arrest him. And when they went back, the, the other people said, well, why didn't you arrest him? You know, and all I could say is no one ever spoke like that. You know, he did all things well. He could talk. He could appeal to all different kinds of people. He worked internationally. He was going around different parts of the, of the Holy Land and, and uh, appealing to all different kinds of people. Nothing. You never read about him going, well, it's just a tough day. Maybe I can try this again tomorrow. You know, he has no problem raising the dead. He has no problem curing people's hearing problems or their, their, their blindness or, or whatever it is. The 10 things that we did in previous classes was that he came into this world to be a door, to teach new doctrine, to fulfill the law and the prophets, to heal the sick, to open our eyes, to cast out demons, to deliver us from evil, to cleanse the lepers, to find the lost, to raise the dead. He did all things well. He was truly perfect. And there's no need for us to be that kind of flawless. All we're being asked to do is receive the Spirit and develop in a way that's unique, that contributes something to the body of the whole. So the Lord will speak to this one, and you've got that gift. Oh, it turns out you have this gift. Nobody's asking you to do all things. Uh, nobody's asking you to be per perfection. Nobody's asking you to be the Messiah. You don't have, that's already done. It was done perfectly, and you wouldn't have done it that perfectly. Uh, the, the, the Lord just needs you to follow along and to work if you really want to go for it. If you want to go for the goal, uh, try coming from love. Just work on that. Follow the commandments. Go through that process and be coming from love because that's what perfect is for us. Uh, so, in sum, each of us does some things well, but also if we're honest with ourselves, we do some things poorly. But Jesus did everything well, and the reason he did everything well was that he was the perfect embodiment of love. He had perfect wisdom. He had boundless compassion for the human race. And the better that we get to know him in the pages of the word, we will find more and more he is actually very, very easy to love. There's a beauty there, an unbelievable beauty, full of grace and truth, uh, and a, a magnificent person. Uh, so loving the Lord, once you get to know him, once you read the word and you really look for the Lord with an open heart, he's not hard to love. He's actually very, very lovable. Thank you, friends, for your kind attention. Let's close with a prayer, shall we? Hey, and before we say this prayer, I just want to say it's going to be Thanksgiving next week. I'm so grateful 
for all the helpers who helped this happen, the donors who have given to keep this Bible study going. It's so enriching to me, and I'm just thankful to everybody who's part of the family. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you're the one God of heaven and earth. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for showing us your love. We can see the truth of that statement, Lord, that you did, unlike any of us. We all have sin. We all fall short. But you had no sin. You were tested. You were tempted like as we are. But you had no sin. And you did all things well. And the only reason you died a criminal's death was because we envied you. Our evil, our I was evil because you are good. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your compassion. We pray that you lift us up and perfect us in love. Our Father who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends, so that we can get to know him better.